The following is a member of the Growler Media Podcast Network. Find out more at growlermedia.com. Comey Snake. Welcome back to Escape from New York Minute, where we celebrate and analyze the dystopian classic one minute at a time. I'm Eric Deutsch. And I'm Molly Balin. And on today's episode, we are joined by another one of our special guests for a bonus episode. He's spent more than 40 years in the business as an expert on creating the sounds we hear when we watch movies and TV shows as a sound editor, sound effects editor, dialogue editor, Foley editor, and ADR editor. The projects he's worked on include Gremlins, G.I. Joe, Muppet Babies, Transformers the Movie, the Transformers TV show, My Little Pony, Field of Dreams, Terminator 2, Total Recall, Baywatch, Natural Born Killers, and Independence Day. But most of all, considering our podcast, he was the Foley editor on Escape from New York. We welcome Nick James to the show. Hello. Thank you very much for joining us, Nick. Uh, so uh, just to make sure our listeners understand, uh, the Foley sound is the background noises that you hear in real life that are difficult to capture when filming. And so uh, you go on a soundstage and you recreate them using interesting methods for us to hear those sounds in movies and TV shows, yeah, correct? Yeah, that's, that's true. I mean, mainly Foley is footsteps, but there are also they also are used as sound effects to accompany and sweeten, that's a term, an old term in sound editorial, the other main effects that are being used. For example, someone might throw something on a bed and there, there would be a sound effect that is recorded and cut directly for that and then the Foley people would uh, maybe add the sound of a spring to it or or some other side effect like that. So as you mentioned, uh, the main aspect of Foley is walking. And in Escape yes. from New York, we've talked about how John Carpenter liked to keep the streets wet for a certain kind of look on the camera. I'm assuming that means that when you had to create the walking sounds for this movie, there maybe had to be a bit of a wetness to the walking. But was that the case? And if so, did that present any anything different from a usual walking sound you might have to create? No. Well, I mean, the only difference would simply be that uh, there would be pavement with water on it. In the Foley stage, there are... Uh, so you make a selection of many different surfaces. You can walk on wood, uh, sand, dirt, tile, carpet, and um, concrete, for example. So there's, there's nothing more in that case than just putting water onto the concrete. I had a very selfish question to ask because I love the Duke's car. And one of the things that I always loved about, and I'm thinking especially of a scene where uh, he's he's chasing Snake across uh, the 69th Street Bridge, and you can hear the tinkle of the chandeliers on the car. And I was wondering if you can recall uh, what produced that sound in actuality. Um, that was not something that I remember arguing. So it must have been done 
by the sound editor mm. from a, maybe a sound effects library or sometimes sound editors just individually record effects rather than sending them to the Foley stage. Mm. Interesting. So uh, talk us through what you did once they gave you the sound that the Foley artist created. Well, it's really very simple. Um, we were working on movieolas in those days, or it was film, and um, we would be given X number of tracks, anywhere from three or four to 15 of uh, footsteps and then props. And we would cut these on the movieola and, and sync them up with the action. That's really all there was to it. I was kind of curious about how you got started in sound, because you've got a, I mean, expansive career and you've done several different aspects of sound, you know, production. I was just kind of curious what your, you know, what led you oh. into this work initially? Well, my father was a sound editor at MGM from oh. 44 to 74. He helped me get into the union and once I was in the union, uh, it was easier to get jobs. In those days, there was not such a broad openness to people becoming editors, photographers, cinematographers. There, you really had to go through the you had to be in the union first. It was kind of a catch twenty two because you couldn't get higher than a union film unless you were in the union, and you couldn't get in the union unless you were working on a union film. <laughs> so the, the way I got in was um, actually interesting and unusual. Um, my father, by the time that um, I was an adult, my father was unable to get me in just because I was his son. At that point, it was the producers and directors who were still able to use that nepotism. So what my father did was bring in a friend of his who had a uh, cousin that was a member of one of the five families in New York, mafia families, and he said to the then head of the editor's union, he says, uh, my friend Van hasn't been able to get his Nick, his son Nick into the guild. And the man responded, the man who would never talk to me on the phone, he said, oh my God, well, he's in. <laughs> that's simple. And that's not usually how people get in. There is something called there was something else, uh, I, forgot that, I forgot what it was called, but it was something that was set up by the um, Motion Picture, uh, not Academy, it was uh, something that Jack Valenti was heading, and they had a rule come through uh, a government um, bill that said Anyone who was working for 30 days on any picture, union or non-union, could then uh, apply and be accepted in the union. And that's the way that most of the people of my generation got in. Mm. 
So then, um, and we'll we'll get into some of the other sound jobs that you've had in your career. But uh, sticking with Foley editing for now, does the Foley editor interact with the director of the picture? Do you only interact with other sound people on the picture? What is the relationship with the Foley editor with well, the rest of the crew? Uh, the Foley editor usually only talks to the Foley supervisor. Mm. Um, and the know. Foley supervisor, which I've also been in some movies, uh, will talk to the director or be on the soundstage when they're re-recording it. So there'll be a direct uh, communication between what the director wants and what the Foley editing crew does. How long does it take for just like in an average movie to for Foley work to perform? Is it just, is it one day in a studio or, or can it can it take longer than that? It's not one day. Some people might try to do it in one day, but it's it's not a very good job. Even with the advance in technology that we have, I would say that a cheap film would take about four days to do the Foley in. Okay. And, and at the time that I was working, it would be more like um, two or three weeks that uh, there would, the Foley stage would be operating. In one instance, though, I was a fully supervisor in on the um, Paul Verhoeven's Starship Troopers, and that was very unusual. I, the Foley stage, was operating for seven months. Wow! Because that's because Paul decided he disliked something after we had done everything and we had to do it all over again. And he had a lot of power then, so the studio wasn't holding his demands down. And it, it, it was uh, considered some kind of a joke of the industry. Nobody ever had that long on a Foley stage. And um, that's just a way of saying that on big studio films, uh, the sound post sound production budget can crawl up to over a million dollars, which seems sort of absurd and incomprehensible when you think about it. But it was like that on studio pictures back then. So when a Foley artist is on the soundstage creating the sounds, are they actually walking back and forth? Are they walking in place? Talk us through uh, how a Foley oh, artist well, do that. They're walking, they're walking in place. The surfaces that they walk on are not that, um, they're not that big. So really, mm -hmm. they, and, and the mic, you know, wouldn't pick up the sound of the footstep getting out of the range of the reception. So yeah, they are, they are walking in place. And then in addition to these surfaces, they have a um, a large collection of virtually anything you can imagine in their on their stage that they use to simulate different effects. Often used are things like car fenders that might be used for any impact of any kind of metal. They have they run water. They have a spray to create some small bit of rain. 
virtually anything that the sound editor didn't do or wasn't asked to do. It's kind of fully, fully people kind of catch everything. They're the finishers. Hmm. Well, since we're talking a little bit about uh, the collaborative process here, I was just curious about what makes a successful creative collaboration for you working with others? That I like the people I'm working with. Mm. Um, it's really very simple. There are in the business, of course, um, extremely obnoxious uh, people, a lot of them, but mostly <laughs> it's, uh, from the producer's end. But then there are the prima donnas, even in sound editorial, who uh, think that they're the only ones who can manage a job well. So that, that is the most important thing. If, you, if you're working with someone, you, usually editors on a crew all get along with each other. Mm. Sometimes a supervisor, which is um, being too demanding or unforgiving and not giving editors enough time, or enough uh, explanation, but um, most most supervisors get along well with their crew. In the old days, before sound editors became mixers, um, the big battle was between the editors and the mixers. The mixers would ask for all kinds of things that that the director never asked for, the director would then think, oh my God, I should have that. And then uh, the editors would be told, they would, they would not be asked to do it. They would usually be set, they would be told, why didn't you do this? Mm. And you better do this now. Mm. Sound editing and is, is of course a below the line um, job. And so the attitude from, and I'm only speaking for the past, I don't know what it's like now, but the attitude coming from the uh, above-the-line talent of directors, producers, and picture editors uh, were something like the um, architects to the uh, ditch diggers. It wasn't pleasant. Mm. Let's move into a bit in your sound effects editing work. Uh, you worked on you worked on some pretty major movies. Uh, a couple of Schwarzenegger movies first come to mind. You did the sound effects editing for both Total Recall and uh, a movie that is one of the greatest science fiction movies ever made, Terminator 2. Uh, and, and there's mm -hmm. some great sound stuff in Terminator 2. Uh, any, any, any interesting uh, things you can tell us about working on either one of those two movies? Terminator 2 was uh, a job that I did not work on the main crew for. The main crew was um, in San Francisco. I was working with a group in Los Angeles, and we were doing a temp mix for um, the director, Jim Cameron. And so we were working within his office and facility and we had a lot of close contact with him and um it was that was one of my favorite jobs 
because they had no interest. They had no concern as Jim Cameron was so powerful. It made no difference to them that we worked 20 hours a day going into turnaround and overtime. Turnaround is when you come back after less than eight hours from the time you left, and then you get double the time in salary. Uh, you get double, double time in essence. Uh, so I enjoyed making a lot of money on that. I enjoyed <laughs> getting, you know, I enjoyed getting to, to know Jim Cameron, and uh, um, it was nice because we worked closely with him. And we didn't, in that case, um, our since it's only a temp dub, usually the sounds wouldn't be used. But Jim liked certain sounds, like the. Um, the snapping of the um, character who uh, was uh, made out of some met metallic substance. The T-1000. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that that's one example. And the effects we did around, around the breaking of his uh, body parts they used in the final mix. And then the... Other film you were talking about was Total Recall. Right. Yeah, Total Recall was probably the movie in which I had done what I think is my best work and worked on it for the longest time and created... I was a sound effects editor, but I also recorded a lot of sound for it, and um, I was on the stage, even though I wasn't the supervisor. Uh, I also knew the, the producer and writer, Ron Chousset. I remember a sequence in which on Mars, Arnold tries to come through customs in a mask of a oh, woman. Oh, sure. Very famous and, scene. And that, yeah, and that starts opening up. And then immediately after that, all the doors surrounding the port are closed. And um, that was a scene that was uh, lots of fun to cut and um, took quite a long time to accomplish. And another one was the uh, humming sound of the actual um, memory machine. And uh, that was very elaborate. And I remembered on the stage, Jerry Goldsmith, who was a composer, wrote something. And um, he wanted his music to be used without sound effects. And I wanted the sound effects to be used without music. And I, and I, I won. I convinced <laughs> Paul. Um, so that's... And, and Jerry was very disgruntled, um, but that's that's rare. That's one of the that usually a composer has priority over anything done in sound. Hmm. I mean, I'll take, similar to that is the story my father had. He was the co-supervisor of the 1959 William Wyler Best, Best Ben Hur, and um, he would have received an Oscar were it not for the fact that MGM only allowed one person 
from the sound editing crew to be um, listed as the supervisor. And his co-supervisor had six months longer of seniority, so he got picked. But my father didn't succeed uh, with Miklos Rosa when he cut the whole scene that was um, in the ocean, in the Mediterranean, where the rowers were uh, rowing the boat and it was being rammed by another boat. And he told me as if they had a hundred um, units uh, running simultaneously, which was a lot in 1959. And they had to have a hundred separate um, 35 millimeter sound reels running to do that effect. They couldn't really do pre-dubs the way that people have done since then. They had to have everything going at the same time. And so you've also worked uh, a lot on uh, TV animation and uh, my two biggest shows when I was growing up that I made sure to watch every day on the way home from school were G.I. Joe and the Transformers. And oh, yeah. uh, it's it's pretty awesome that you did the sound effects editing on those two shows because one of the things I loved about shows was the sound effects, the laser guns and oh, the explosions really? and the planes. Uh, talk a bit about uh, work, working on those two shows. Well, I was working for Marvel for about a year and a half when I was doing those. There's not really anything more I can say except that we had a good sound effects library. Mm. When you're working in animation, the budget is low and you usually can't go out and record anything. So um, we used what we had, either what Marvel provided or what the individual, individual editors had in their library. In that vein, uh, Brad, our producer, he, one of his favorite shows growing up was Defenders of the Earth. And um, he and I hosted, before Escape from New York, uh, Brad and I were co-hosts on Flash Gordon uh, Minute. And he often talked uh -huh. about Defenders of the Earth because, of course, Flash Gordon was one of the main characters on there. To see if Brad wants to hop on here and uh, ask a question. Brad, you got any questions you wanted to ask about Defenders of the Earth sound effects? Well, you know, it's... Um, thanks a lot. And, and Mr. James, it's really interesting because it sounds like... Uh, I, I'm more in gen just general. It sort of sounds like what you're saying is when you're doing the animation stuff, you got to do it sort of uh, quick and sloppy, and it's really impressive that you're able to come up with such great sound. Because uh, I agree with Eric, uh, what made Transformers and GI Joe and Defenders of the Earth so interesting yeah. was uh, th the sound always worked. So. Uh, was it like really challenging to do that on a comparatively shoestring budget as opposed to movies, or was it sort of fun that you could sort of was there sort of a more wild west feel to doing the animation? Well, I wouldn't say there was a wild west feel to doing the animation. It was um, pretty straightforward. Also, I wanted to add that the fact that there was no dialogue editing to be done since everything was re-recorded, re of course, in animation, that made our work all the much easier. And like I said before, the fact that the sound libraries had effects that had been mixed down and pre-dubbed and made for shows that came before we started working on 
the animated TV shows that we did so that, um, again, it was uh, luck that we just had editors and libraries that could produce, you know, cut in good, good sound effects. I don't know the source of most of those sound effects, but except to say that editors always have their own sound libraries. And um, since sound, as far as I know, is not considered intellectual property, a lot of the sounds that we use came from other movies. When an editor would work on a movie and create a good sound effect, he would just keep it in his own library and then use it again in some other film. <laughs> That's sort of how, and so sometimes he gets famous and you get the Wilhelm scream uh, from something like that, I would imagine. <laughs> oh, yeah, except I, we none of us used the Wilhelm scream. <laughs> you know, there are certain effects that we are, are too recognizable. <laughs> too cliche. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I was kind of curious because obviously you've been in the business quite a long time and there's been, I'm sure, uh, a plethora of technological changes that you've witnessed. And I was kind of curious about how your job has changed with the technology over time and to what benefit has it been to you? Well, it changed enormously from film to digital. And as far as my personal experience in it, I would say that it had something to do with my retiring early because mm. I didn't, I was never a mixer and I didn't learn the business when these new digital systems came into existence. I worked on them for several years and I did some good work on them, but by and large, what happened in about 20 years ago was that new server supervisors came in that were doing a lot of pre-dubs on their equipment, um, such as the Pro Tools, for example, and they had so much control over it that they had to be put on the mixing stage in order to make it work with um, the music and the dialogue. This was to the initial horror of the, the mixers, this motion picture mixers, but it was an inevitability. And uh, I was before that time, so I didn't know all of the uh, skills that the new digital editors knew. Another thing that's changed uh, since I started working and when my father was working in, in sound editorial is that um, the sound editor went from the position of being like a plumber on a project to becoming an architect. Mm. Sound uh, became so much bigger and um, versatile, and there was the introduction of the the five point one systems mm. that um, really 
for a lot of people, replaced what we were doing. And there were degrees that people had, sound editorial degrees from film schools, which uh, would seem, they were non-existent when we went to school. And uh, everybody that became a sound editor in my time was a sound editor because I couldn't get a job being a picture editor. So that um, it was, it got to the point when it was changing that some of us, you know, uh, one of the supervisors I was working for said he got a letter from a young woman who said that she's so impressed and so excited about the sound effects that, that she decided to make this her life's career to which um, the supervisor just laughed. You know, I can't believe this, you know, that someone would want to be a sound editor, <laughs> but it's, you know, it's changed obviously since then. Another credit that's listed on our IRNDB page uh, that I've seen you've done a few times, I'd say maybe the movie most that's most famous that you've done this on is field of dreams is a dialogue editor. Can you, Tell us what a dialogue editor does. Yeah, a dialogue editor has the most difficult job in sound editorial because what you have to do is take selections made by the picture editor and the director of lines that were done during different takes so that every time the camera was reset up, you were shooting it from a different angle and often the ambience in the background would be a very startling jump. So the dialogue editor's job was to make a absolutely clean segue between one setup and another setup. And it required making a lot of, making more than one background fill track that was just the sound of the room. Uh, which these things were difficult to make because you had to take a particular take from a scene and cut out all of the noise and all of the dialogue and all of the direction until you came up with a relatively short uh, amount of um, of sound, maybe less than a, well, a minute would be a lot. I would say less than 15 seconds. And then you have to re-record that against itself, with itself, to try and cover up any reoccurring loop sound that you might have. It's the most time-consuming and the most difficult job in editing, I think. Your father was Van Allen James? Yes. I, I took a quick glance at his IMDb page, and just to let everyone know... Sound uh, on a, a lot of very famous movies. Soylent Green, The Dirty Dozen, North by Northwest, Dr. Jafago, Singing in the Rain, a whole bunch of Twilight Zone episodes. Of course, my favorite was Singing in the Rain. Because mm -hmm. I, it's just one of my favorite movies. And I was excited that my father cut that. And uh, it turns out that his main job was to put in all of the tap steps that were done in the movie. Because of course, when you're shooting a film, even 
when Gene Kelly was tap dancing, he he didn't have uh, very powerful taps on, or actually more more to the point, they didn't record his feet. They mm. recorded his singing and uh, and dialogue, so that the sounder had to come in and match every single frame that had a metallic tap in it. Oof. Yeah, it's very time-consuming. Right, Molly, you want to uh, get in one last question? I actually kind of had a question about your writing. I'm wondering, because we have many different creatives who listen to our podcast, I'm wondering if you have any any advice for a writer. Keep doing it every day, and even though you hate doing it and you can't possibly come up with something that you think is good, you should still write anyway. Right now, writing is not easy for me, but I enjoy it. When I started writing when I was 18, it was torment. I locked myself in a room for two hours a day, and I wouldn't leave. And, and for those two hours, I could do whatever I wanted. So I ended up writing something. But um, writing is, when you start out, an extremely difficult task. Um, I don't know. I don't know why. I've never been able, never been able to figure that out. I suppose it has something to do with um, letting out your own inner world and putting it on paper. Well, what I discovered was we all think that we know what we are about and that we know our own thoughts and feelings. But when you come down to it and try and make it actual and physical and written, um, you discover that there's an endless number of blocks between your, your inner feelings and intentions of what you actually produce. The only advice I would give to anybody is what works for me, which is to uh, listen to music when you're mm-hmm. writing because that sets a mood and it sort of um, lets your mind wander off, wander off into yourself. Cool. Thank you for that. Appreciate it. Nick, thank you so much for being willing to come on and chat with us today. We very much appreciate it. We're super grateful for your okay. time and your insights and talking about your very long career. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. And you can follow us on Twitter at NY Minute Pod. Also, we have a Facebook group, Brains Library, the Escape from New York Minute Hangout. And with that, be on time, stay out of the sewers, and we'll meet you on the other side of the wall.